0: bow with me as we come now to the scripture please pray with me father we now come to your word and pray that you would help us we have sung that we're prone to wander that may be even especially true as we open the scripture and so I pray that you would keep us from wandering keep our minds from wandering keep our hearts from wandering keep us um, therefore in the spirit that we might listen listened well and learned and God that it would be then put in us by your spirit to obey, to follow and that that following of you would not only be our desire but would be our great joy we pray this Father in Jesus name Amen turn to Colossians in chapter 3 please Colossians chapter 3 and I just want to read um, verses 18 really um, and then I'll read through the first verse of chapter 4. It's a bit more than I've listed in the bullets and what I've listed in the bullets is just what I'll speak about, but I want to read that so you can see where we're headed, see the context. So Colossians in chapter 3, please, verse 18. Hear the word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, And do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive The inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, as we've been working our way through this letter to the church in Colossae from the Apostle uh, Paul, we've realized that the emphasis is upon Christ, really, and that we're to walk worthy of Him. You remember that, that He begins uh, this letter with a prayer. We read it together a few moments ago. Uh, out of verse 9, He said, And so, chapter 1, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So you get a sense that as Paul's going to write out this letter, he's going to talk about the will of God. He's going to give to us this spiritual wisdom and understanding, that's, that, that understanding that comes from God, from the Spirit. Our spiritual and understanding And the purpose of all that is verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And so that's the purpose of all of this. At the end of the day, after having read this letter, we should have a sense of the will of God. We should have spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that should be growing in us. It isn't stagnant, but dynamic, growing in us. And all of that so that throughout the course of our lives we'd be living worthy of Christ, that is, consistent with who He is, and thus fully pleasing to Him. And so Paul lays that out. He speaks to us of Christ so that we would know Him, what Christ has done, so that we would understand that. And then he begins to apply that. He says that we're to not indulge the flesh, remember the end of chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 he lays out this how it is that we live so that we do not indulge the flesh the sinful natures how do we live so that we walk worthy of Christ fully pleasing to him and he says that we're to set our minds on Christ where Christ is we're to set our minds and Christ is in glory and thus when we set our minds there when we set our minds on him we realize that he is the Lord that he's ruling and reigning And that he's interceding for us, which means he's not only ruling us, but he's helping us. He's ruling us, he's the Lord, he's interceding for us, defending us, thus helping us. And so we need to put our eyes there so we'll know who we are, we know how we're to live, and to know where our strength comes from. It comes from him so that we're not relying on ourselves, but we're following after him in his strength, according to his will so we set our minds there and in the midst of that we realize this we realize that we've died and now our lives are hidden with Christ in God and there's a sense in which all that is true hasn't yet been seen about us or about him but one day it will be when he appears we will appear also with him in glory and then it will be perfectly clear now we're to live this out this life that's hidden with Christ in God And that life, this life that's hidden in Christ, or with Christ in God, that life is one of a new self, a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. We've put off the old that is related to our sinful condition, and we've put on the new which is related to Christ so that we might follow after him and this new self, this new perfect person is one who's being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator we know that sin uh, resulted in the image of God in us being perverted and now it's being renewed, this image of God in us that means that we've been reconciled to God we've been reconciled to each other and now we're to live that out. And so we're to put off all those things which are contrary to our having been reconciled to God and to put off all those things which destroy the reconciliation that we have with each other. And so we're to put off anger and malice and wrath and slander and, and covetousness and so forth. We're to put off... Uh, sinful passions of, of of the flesh such as sexual immorality and evil desires and so forth we're to put all of that off because, because that will really it's inconsistent with our having been reconciled with God it's inconsistent with the new self and it's inconsistent with our relationships with each other it will destroy them so we're to put them off and we're then to put on all those things which are consistent with Christ. All those things which restore and maintain the reconciliation that Christ died to achieve with God and with each other. And so we're to put on, we're to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. We're to bear with each other and we're for, to forgive one another. And over all these things, he says, we're to put on love because that binds these things plus all of us all together to put on love and not only that it's the peace of Christ that's to rule in our hearts we're always to be asking ourselves about our lives and how is it the way we think and how is it the way we speak and how is it the way that we live how will all of that affect the peace that God has brought in to us among ourselves and with him that peace that Christ died to achieve and we're to Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly so that everything that we think and everything that we say and everything that we do is informed by that which is true, the very Word of Christ. In fact, everything that we do and thought, word, deed, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus because He is the Lord. Now Paul comes to apply all of that he comes to apply it in particular ways. We see it, he's applying it in relationships with husband and wives. He's applying it in relationship with uh, with children and parents, and he's relying, it, er, applying it in, in between slaves and masters. Now we'll come to that slaves and masters thing in a while. It'll probably take us a little while to get there. But um, when we get there, we'll see it's it's not as upsetting to us as as it appears to be because in that context, slaves and masters were very different than the context that we understand it in the history of our country Um, we will see that this will apply most directly in our context between uh, employees and employers uh, very much so he applies it in in those contexts here Um, so we want to take up um, this first one wives wives being submitting, wives submitting to their husbands as is fitting to the Lord, and husbands um, loving their wives, not, not being harsh with them. We don't know exactly why uh, Paul uses these three, especially this one about marriage, uh, to apply all that he's been talking about. Obviously, there's broader application in other spheres as well, but 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 these three, and or two really, in the family, husbands and wives, kids and parents, and then in the workforce, he applies it. It um, could be that there were some specific issues in Colossae of which we don't know, but it could have been some things that he says, I need to talk to you about these areas of life. could be simply that these areas of life were very, very affected by our sin. By, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, which we will in a minute, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you find that relationships between husbands and wives and even in the context of family we were very deeply affected by Adam's sin and we also see that that our work was deeply affected by Adam's sin Um, we see that the relationship between husband and wife would be kind of turned on its ear, we find that there would even be pain in childbirth which might be a metaphor for child rearing and there is also uh, pain in labor not only labor to give birth but physical labor and work and so we see all of that was affected by the fallen so now paul comes back to say you're being renewed after the image of your creator and being renewed after the image of your creator means that that which was affected by sin is now being redeemed that which is affected by sin is now being restored and so though the relationship between husbands and wives was affected by sin now it's going to be that 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 effect will be reversed in the same way even relationships between parents and children relationships between workers and employers and one's labor all of that been affected by the fall now it's been redeemed by Christ and so we'll see that it's, all of those relationships will be renewed after the image of Christ and so he comes to these we realize that this first one wives submitting to husbands and so forth, is a smaller version of what we read in our responsive reading out of Ephesians in chapter 5. Uh, there it's a, a longer expression of wives being submissive to husbands and husbands being the head of their wives and all of that. And again, we'll come to some of that in a few minutes. But, but here it's shorter. It's, it's, uh, there's a, a version of it as, as well in First Peter in chapter 3, a little different context even, applying to a woman who's married to an unbeliever and what that looks like, but also in relationships of husbands and wives who are both in the faith so we see it there as well so it's not unique to Colossians it's spread out over the course of scripture and other places as well by way of applications as to how, uh, as to how we're to live it could be that since Colossians and Ephesians were sort of written at the same time it may be that Ephesians being the, the more in-depth one at least theologically uh, could have been considered to be a circular letter and it it would sort of go around not only in Ephesus but in other places as well so this broader teaching could unfold we don't really know why it's shorter here and longer in the others except that we're fortunate of course um, fortunate to have both Just a couple of observations before I I get into some nitty-gritty stuff and it's going to take me just so you'll know this weekend, at least next, to get through these two verses. So don't don't think I'm going to say everything today. So I'm going to have to leave you a bit hanging uh, on what some of these things mean and how we may uh, apply them. I know everybody's a bit on edge. What's he going to say about this? Um, but just a few observations. One, I know that not everybody here is married. This two verses uh, deal with marriage, uh, yet. Still, there's some great value. I mean, some are not married because you're too young. Some are not married because God has called you to singleness. Others not married, but you will be. Others uh, were married and have been widowed or divorced. So all kinds of different situations there. But yet value because... This is still the word of God. It's still to be read. Still to be thought about publicly by all people. And so we read all portions of Scripture, regardless of our particular circumstance and situation. Uh, obviously, to read because others of you who aren't married will be someday, and of course those who are married need it as well. But even so, we realize that that marriage is bigger than just a relationship between a man and a woman. It's bigger than that. There's something else going on here that we need to understand so that we can understand not only the institution of marriage, not only how husbands and wives are to to live, but also to understand really the Christian faith, to understand more about Christ and about us and our relationship to him. I also realize that these words of submission, and a word that isn't here but is in Ephesians 5 that we read a little while ago, headship, can be misunderstood and abused. I understand that. I understand throughout history that men have abused being the head of their lives. have abused it in a variety of ways. Probably the biggest abuse is in what we might call abdication, they've just sort of abandoned being the head. Isn't that they've been abusive? They just sort of checked out. They haven't taken that responsibility. That, that's probably the primary abuse, eh? a lesser abuse, but more dramatic and more devastating abuse of this headship is in the context of, of real abuse, in the context of physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, of men being harsh physically and verbally. With their wives because they think it's their position. They think that they can actually do that. And throughout the course of history, we've seen that, still see it to this day. I know that. I also know that submission has been misunderstood and misapplied by women as well. Uh, In times, uh, to think it simply means I must acquiesce to everything that my husband tells me, wants me to do, even if it's sin, uh, even if it's harmful to the family, uh, that uh, being submissive means I simply must obey everything that comes f- from my husband. And so it's been misapplied, misunderstood that way as well. It's also been misunderstood this idea of submission. in um, women who've said, well, what this really means is to ha- get my own way, then I must be manipulative rather than upfront, And so we find it can also inspire a tremendous amount of creative manipulation uh, as well, neither of those fitting to the Lord, so we're certainly um, certainly aware of that but even in the midst of that, the, the way that we combat abuse, the way that we combat misunderstanding is by understanding and right application, it's still here, we still need to deal with it, it's still the word of God we can't just simply uh, uh, say well we're not very good at this, therefore we're going to skip over it, we need to, to really grab a hold of it And really understand it because you realize the first question that we come to the scriptures with is not the question of why and it's not the question of how but it's the question of what we come to the scripture looking for God to define who he is and who we are. So that we can understand how it is that we're to relate to him, how it is that we're to relate to each other, how it is that we're to live. And so we come to the scripture first and foremost in submission to it, say asking the question, what? God, what am I to do? How am I to think? What is true here? And then normally and very often God fills in the how and the why, though not always. Sometimes it feels like we're sort of left to work out the details on our own. He tells us the what of it, and then he says, Now get on and, and live by my spirit. But still we come to the scripture asking the question what, so that we can submit to it. Not we, we, in, in so doing, we, we, we admit our own sin. We admit that we don't know, that we admit that, that we can't, and thus we need God to fill this in for us. And we come then as his people saying, We'll do whatever it is, you command us to do, and we'll be thankful that you're telling us this, and we'll receive it, and we'll be grateful for it. Because we know, God, that you're wise. We know, God, that you're good, and therefore we can trust you. And so, whatever it is that you tell us as we understand it, whatever it is that you tell us, we'll do and we'll be thankful for it because we know this is best. It shouldn't surprise us that God tells us things that we would never have thought of on our own. It shouldn't surprise us that God would tell us things that we would never particularly want to do unless he told us. Um... We have a tendency to think that if the word of God goes contrary to to our inclinations or our culture, there must be something missing here that God's trying to tell us so that we can fit his word into our lives. And the truth of the matter is we're to live fitting our lives into his word. And we do that with a confidence that this is really life. We do that with a confidence that to live this way, to live the way of God is is really, really life. We've we've sung about that this morning. I just I didn't think about this until we were singing, but um, this expression in, in in the first hymn we sang, "Praise to the Lord, the Almighty," um, second verse, very end, hast thou not seen how all thy longings have been granted in what He ordaineth? That is to say, what God ordains to come to pass and most certainly what he commands will fill our real longings. That's just true. That's a great sentence, whoever wrote that. Um, so we realized that. And then we prayed this, this song, Oh Great God. By the way, it comes the lyrics from a little book prayer book called the valley of vision if you'd like to buy a little prayer book sometime buy that one it's called the valley of vision just a number of prayers that will help you kind of jumpstart your own prayer life but uh, whoever this songwriter person is music writer wrote a tune to um, these these lyrics by and large second verse i was blinded by my sin had no ears to hear your voice okay that's a confession and that's true of us we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So we're blinded by our sin. And we don't have any ears to hear his voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. And, and even still, when we read the scripture, there are times when it doesn't taste good. And so we need to acquire <laughs> that taste by way of the Holy Spirit. Then your spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son. Gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now. To live a life that's dependent on your grace, keep my heart, guard my soul from the evils that I face, you're worthy to be praised from every thought, indeed, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. so this, in terms of husbands and wives, uh, we shouldn't shrink back wives from this command of being submissive, husbands of this command, in so many words, to be head. We mustn't shrink back from that but listen to God understand how it is that we're to live give him thanks uh, and then and then live it out notice how Paul puts it verse 18 wives submit to your husband the word submit means exactly what, it think, what you think it means alright the word sub means under mission means to be sent to submit means to be sent under you're sent on a mission you're sent somewhere and you're under that is that you're in submission to the authority of another Um, submission it's in Greek uh, could be translated as under rank to understand that you're under rank now we know we'll look at this in a minute that men and women were created in the image of God equal so it isn't Lesser of value, it isn't inferiority and one being superior. It's an understanding of voluntary, placing oneself under the authority of another to submit. And it says, as is fitting in the Lord. That is, it's, it's, it, it fits with Him. Uh, he, were to submit to Him. So when wives are submitting to their husbands, they're also submitting to Christ, who is the Lord. Who has placed a husband, in some sense, make sure you get those words, in some sense, uh, in authority over over his wife. Then husbands love your wives; don't be harsh with them. That flows. We'll see next week, out of or the week after, perhaps, out of this Ephesians five notion of husbands being head of their wives, as Christ is head of the church, and in fact. This relationship of husband and wife flows out of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Turn quickly to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. The Apostle writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, uh, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another uh, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your hearts, giving thanks always. And for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so you can see that that those who are filled with the Spirit speak to one another, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and all of that. They give thanks... always and for everything to god the father and they are those who submit to one another and so then the question is what does that mean to submit to one another in what context and to whom and then paul goes on in this piece in ephesians and does a similar thing to what he does in colossians except as i mentioned in a little more detail he begins with wives submitting to their husbands for the husband is the head of the wife and then he speaks of children obeying parents and then he speaks of slaves obeying earthly masters. And so when he's talking about submission to one another, he lays it out and what that what he means by that. To whom do we submit and, and all of that. What are those relationships? And he speaks of wives to husbands, children um, to parents, and slaves, and slaves to masters. But notice also that that there are different kinds of relationships which give rise to different kinds of submission. Uh, uh, children are said to Obey parents. It's a little different word than what's used of wives and husbands. So Paul isn't saying that wives obey their husbands, though children submit to their parents in obedience. He uses the word slaves obeying masters. And so slaves obey masters, different word than submit. Thus their submission is different than wives to husbands and we would expect that obviously children young and immature need parents to help them grow uh, slaves or workers have a particular relationships with with the masters or employers employers and the employers have a different kind of authority over them whereas husbands and wives equal husbands and wives both mature in the Lord husbands and wives together made in the image of God in this relationship such so the submission would be voluntary be different in some sense than this pure obedience of children to parents and slaves to masters and obviously in any of those situations it's not absolute because we know that when anyone whether it's a husband whether it's a parent whether it's a master in a work situation is urging us or commanding us to do that which would be sin we shouldn't do that it's a difficult call sometimes because we often want to call what someone else is trying to get us to do sin if we don't want to do it Uh, but we have to evaluate that but we know that this is never absolute submission or even absolute obedience to another person because we know that our absolute submission, our absolute obedience uh, is to God. All that I want to do today is to give a sense that this relationship between husbands and wives isn't something that is cultural to Paul's day or even to our own but most especially to Paul's day but rather goes all the way back and is embedded in creation and that it's our sin that perverts this submission and headship notion and it's Christ who redeems it and then to see how serious it is that we live in this particular way if we go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 which is where the beginning is. Um, The Genesis means in the beginning. It means the beginning. And when we go back there, we realize that there are two creation accounts, really. There's the uh, compressed version, and then there's the slow-motion version. Uh, The compressed version is chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Then Genesis 2, verse 5, on through the verse 25 on to the end there is, is sort of the slow motion version we get day 6 kind of unpacked in the creation of Adam and Eve, these aren't two separate creation accounts in the sense that they conflict with one another they complement one another, one gives us the quick overview, one says okay what I want you to see in these 6 days what I want you to see is this uh, creation of humanity of Adam and Eve, of mankind and so we find in Genesis one this verse 26. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the, the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And so, you get this sense of equality. You get this sense of both male and female created in the image of God, each to reflect Him. It doesn't say exactly how they're to reflect Him. It doesn't say if they're to reflect Him in exactly the same ways and and, and all of that, if there are any differences in that. But simply, they're both created uh, in the image of God to reflect Him, to image Him. And then verse 28, He gives them this mandate. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the uh, heavens and over every living thing that moves uh, on the earth. And then he speaks to them about what they're to eat and how they're to work and so forth. But then as we come to chapter 2, we find that that, that God sort of unpacks this for us, especially this uh, day 6. Because in verse 7 of chapter 2, well, let me begin with verse 5. Moses writes, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Singular here, not male and female, but male, just this man he Made, Put him in the garden. Then verse 15. He tells him this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. This point is just the man, just Adam. And then verse 18, the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So it wasn't good. He was alone. And again, as we understand the image of God, of love, how is it that one man alone could really image God? Thus we realize, we go back to chapter 1 and realize he made male and female. We say, ah, two together, they can image God. For they can love. So then verses 19... And twenty, uh, God makes uh, brings all the animals before uh, before Adam to see if there's a suitable helper for him. And Adam names all the animals. He, he was the he was the head of the garden, if you will. So it was his job is that to to name all the animals. So he did that. Uh, I don't know. I, I always smile when I read this part. I get the sense that Adam would say, "Giraffe, no, that's not going to work. Uh, elephant, <laughs> I'm just not attracted to it. You know, just isn't." Uh fit for me I just don't know why but no Uh, you know monkey no not going to work and then God makes a helper suitable for him one who is fit for him and notice his Adam's response this at last you know I've gone through all the animals in the garden and I've given them all names and I haven't given any of them names that would match mine that would be fit for me any of them But this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman uh, because she was taken out of man. So she's from me and like me and compatible with me. She's a helper that's suitable, that's fit, that's right for me. She's my complement. We fit together. The animals didn't fit together with Adam. Another man wouldn't have fit together with Adam. Thus, this woman, he says, oh, that fits together with me. And then God sets this up then, and he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so there's this sense of union between the two together now, imaging God, reflecting, reflecting him. There's a number of things that we learned from from this particular Passage these two together, one equality between male and female, no question there one isn 't above the other below the other one isn 't superior, one isn 't inferior but there 's this sense of relationship together there 's this sense of responsibility that Adam has that uh, that uh, eve doesn 't have and we see first that he was created first and in the in the in the not Only the culture of the day of the Old Testament, but in the language of the the Bible, especially the language of the Old Testament, there is this sense of priority, of leadership, of that which is first. Uh, you can see it in uh, in the inheritance laws, even in the Old Testament, that the firstborn got a double portion. Uh, you see it in the fact that Israel is called the firstborn of God. And so special to him, different than all the other. They would receive this inheritance from God. We even read in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean that, that he was a created one or that there wasn't anyone else born before Jesus was incarnate, before Mary gave birth to him. But what it means is that he's the head over all of that. He is the leader of all of that because he's the firstborn. In fact, when Paul speaks of relationships between husbands and wives and men and women even, he uses this fact of of Adam being made first to support his view. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is a, a granted a difficult passage that deals with um, head coverings of women and so forth and so on. Um, I won't go into those details. but But Paul uses as his... Rational is his uh, foundation for making these points. He says, verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's saying there's a, a sense here of, of order. Man first, thus he has a different position, different responsibility there. In fact, as Paul's laying out relationships between men and women, even in the context of, of the life of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He founds it on this point. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, that idea of Eve being deceived doesn't mean that women are more easily deceived than men. He's just simply saying that Adam was formed first. He was the one to whom the command was given. He was the responsible party. Therefore, he's the responsible one. In fact, as you read through the scripture, you'll find in relationship to sin, it's always referred to as the sin of Adam, the sin of the man, the sin of the one man. In fact, Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15, in a sense, as the second Adam. The first Adam came and fell, that is Adam, this Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. uh, And then Jesus came to, to correct, to reverse, to save, and thus to overcome that which the first had lost. So he's the second Adam in that sense. You, you get the sense that that Adam is the responsible party. That Eve isn't responsible for her own sin. But he's the responsible party. He's the representative head of this whole garden. He's the one who is there. And also Adam had the responsibility of naming. Naming always comes to the one who is the responsible one. The one who is the head. Um, um, God... Called the light day he named that which was light day he named that which was dark night uh, he went through if you read through Genesis 1 he gives names to all of these things which he creates and then Adam is the head of the garden names all the animals in fact he even names the woman in fact he even gives her the name Eve he is the one who names her thus it says in some sense therefore he is leader he is head he is the responsible uh, party there, Adam is head. In fact, when God names His creation, these men and women, this that He is, this man and woman He has created, He refers to them as man. Uh, Genesis chapter five, verse one: This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them. He blessed them, named them man, and they were. Created. He speaks of humanity, if you will, as man, uh, to stand for all, to be the representative of, of all of them. And so we can see that there is a certain responsibility that Adam has. And now when we come to chapter 3 where sin enters into the race, we find that responsibility the same as well. Because the serpent comes to Eve, as you remember, she eats, she sins, she gives to Adam. But it's God then when he comes, he doesn't come to Eve, he comes comes to Adam. When Adam and Eve sort of run from God, verse 9 of Genesis 3, it says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Singular, you. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me. Guys, just never take responsibility. The man said, the woman you gave to uh, be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And so we see that it's Adam who's the, in a sense, in that sense, uh, the responsible, the responsible party, and notice what happens because of the fall. Notice what happens because of this sin. Not only verse fifteen does God put enmity between Satan and the woman, and all of that, and He promises to bring one who will bruise the head of this Satan. And I'm sorry, who will who, yeah, crush the head of this Satan, even though his heel will be bruised. But He speaks to the woman in verse sixteen, and He says, "I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing." In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. So we know that in this primary aspect of a woman's life of bearing children, he says, now it'll be different, it'll be hard, it'll be painful. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try to alleviate that pain, but it'll be painful. And he says, your desire shall be for your husband. Now in one sense, that sounds pretty good. But not that little word for desire. You go over to chapter 4 and verse 7. In Genesis, where that same word is used, it's used in a different context, but it helps us to understand um, what God has in mind here. Verse seven of Genesis chapter four, speaking of Cain, who of course was a murderer. He says, "If you do well, you will not be will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door; its desire." That is, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same exact expression. And sin's desire for Cain is to destroy him, is to overpower him, is to overtake him. And thus, this desire of wife or husband, because of sin, will be to overtake him. And then he shall rule over you. And again, that rule isn't this servant, ruling, loving, Sacrificing husband head, but it 's one who will rule because he has more strength and because he's able to overpower overpower her and now you see is Paul writes to husbands and wives as to how they're to live both in Ephesians and in Colossians. He doesn't say that there is no relationship between the two. He doesn't say that one still isn't head over the other. But he says in that relationship, it's to be redeemed so that sin is out of the picture. And so now the submission is voluntary and pleasing and not manipulative of the husband. Not a desire to rule over him, to take his place, but it's to come under him and to help and to support. And on the other hand, the headship isn't one that rules because of strength, but it rules out of love, it doesn't rule selfishly, but rules for the benefit, for the blessing of the other, just as Christ does for us. So as we think about this, we realize that this isn't something that's cultural, it isn't something that's bound by Paul's culture or ours, but rather it is rooted in creation itself. And the significance of all of this is this. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 5. Paul speaks of the relationship between husbands and wives. And in verse 32, he says something at least that's to me very surprising. He says, this mystery is profound. And I would think it would be profound to talking about wives being submissive to their husbands and and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, being their head as Christ is head of the church. And so I would expect Paul to say this mystery is profound about husbands and wives and how they're to relate to one another. Who would think it could be like this? But he doesn't say that. He says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Well, what do you mean? What he means is this. That Mary's the relationship between a husband and a wife. Is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. Well, God in his graciousness has made for husbands and wives, he's made it in such a way that yes, it'll be a blessing to the husband and wife. Yes, it's the way to live. Yes, it is real life and all of that. But there's something bigger about all of this and the biggerness of it is that in living this out, it's to display the glory of God. As husbands love their wives, the world is to see how Christ loves the church as wives submit to their husbands the world is to see how the church loves Christ it's that big it isn't something that we should kick at, it isn't something that we should gloss over, it isn't something that we should say well that doesn't apply to us anymore because we're all the way into the 21st century and we know differently but if we're to display God we're to live as he instructs it's that important we'll get to the details later pray with me Uh, Father in heaven it is astounding God to realize that everything that we do say think flows back to you it's to be done to glorify you, or to live and do everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus, help us, those married as husbands and wives, to live in this way. And help us in the weeks ahead to understand all that this means. So we don't fall prey to sinful abuses, but we are able to display that which you design marriage to be. To show forth Christ. Help us. Father as we bow to pray. We think. Of your goodness to us. And it helps. Us to trust you. We. See that in the cross of Christ. We know that in our own individual lives. We. Set our minds on things above where Christ is. As the one who is the Lord. As the one who. Even intercedes for us to help us. Thus when we receive. We receive commands that seem beyond us that might even put us at odds with the culture in which we live we know that he is there interceding for us to help us so I pray for husbands and wives most especially in these days that we would reflect Christ Father too, we give you thanks for Heather Lessig's successful surgery this week we continue to pray for her healing Father, for our dear Eileen, she's in the hospital. We pray for her that you would please relieve her pain. We continue to pray that you would heal her cancer, take it from her body. We pray you'd grant to Scott, to Courtney, Jessica, and Tim great peace to trust in you. And Father, we pray for Stephanie and Daniel Osborne this week as they grieve the loss of this one untimely born. Less than 20 weeks. And so we pray that you would grant to them your grace. That they would love one another in such a way that it would reflect the love of Christ. And you would grant them in their grief comfort, we pray. Father, for us all, that we would be devoted to you and to you alone. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing.
1: joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship Him now, how great